Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will continue to put it to good use. Okay, business handled. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We kindle and charge and flame and drink up in our new world. We burn up It's not entirely far-fetched to draw parallels between rockers on the open road in the 20th century and pirates out on the open sea way back in the 18th. Both cultures have an outlaw sensibility. They share a certain rootlessness and restlessness. Pillage and plunder celebrate afterwards with wine, women, and song. And our mateys, on to the next town. Uh, Decadent exploits and crazy hardcore fun out on the road are not new, nor are they confined to the rock and roll life. It's one of the appeals of working in entertainment, be it music, theater, or whatever. You run off to join the circus. You get your act together and take it out on the road. But the Rolling Stones 1969 American tour is the stuff of legend. It took the Bacchanalian debauchery of the road to whole new heights, or whole new dabs, depending on your perspective. The crazy stories and urban legends you've heard over the years about rock and roll pirates rampaging across America, well, a lot of that got started right here. And some of those stories are true. We'll get into that shortly. Rock writer Robert Criscow called it history's first mythic rock and roll tour. We concur. It ended in tragedy at Altamont, and we will get deep into that subject today, but it was also a triumph. The 69 American tour was when Mick and Keefe and the boys snatched the crown away from the Beatles to become the world's greatest rock and roll band. 
The Stones were heading back to America after a three-year absence. In the wake of drug busts, financial mismanagement, and the firing and death of their founder, Brian Jones, they needed to reestablish themselves. The tour would introduce new guitarist Mick Taylor and their powerful new album, Beggar's Banquet, along with new songs from the soon-to-be-released Let It Bleed. On July 5th, just two days after Brian Jones' untimely death, the Stones played a free concert in front of about 300,000 fans in Hyde Park, London, their first live show in two years. This would set them on the course to America. Enter today's guest, Sam Cutler. After reading Sam's 2010 book, You Can't Always Get What You Want, and speaking with him, the whole pirates and rockers thing just jumped out at us. It doesn't take much imagination to picture him at the helm of a pirate schooner exhorting his crew of rapscallions onto more plunder. Sam was instrumental in putting the Hyde Park concert together, and the Stones took him on to manage the American tour. Uh, the stakes were very high, and Sam was exactly what the band needed, a road dog with some serious smarts. Mick was his majesty, uh, waving orders, and Ronnie Schneider was the quartermaster in charge of the money. But Sam was the captain of this particular pirate ship. The final show was December 6th in Altamont, uh, 40 miles outside of San Francisco, and it ended up being one of Rock's darkest days. The Stones were lucky to get out with their lives, but they did, thanks in no small part to Sam Cutler. The next day, the Stones were on a plane back to London, while Sam was stuck holding the bag in California. Uh, tell me, what can a poor boy do? The captain was without a crew and on the run, and the Hells Angels, among others, were after his ass. Sam bailed on the hotel and blew off the bills. He took refuge at the only place in California he knew, at Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart's ranch north of San Francisco. A few days later, Jerry Garcia decided to bring Sam under his wing. The dead felt a little responsible for the fix he was in, and besides, they could use a man of his talent. For the next four years, Sam served as tour manager for Captain Trips and the family. He helped the Grateful Dead get solid financially. He piloted them on their voyage across Europe in 1972 that was documented in a highly successful live album. If you've seen the new Amazon-produced documentary, Long Strange Trip, by our friend Amir Barlev, well, then you've noticed Sam. He's hard to miss. He really jumps out of the screen at you, and he has some very funny and highly relevant takes. Well, hey, let's just have Sam tell us about it. Let's get to it right now with the swashbuckling Mr. Cutler. Today, 
we have a very special guest with us. Anyone more than slightly familiar with the Rolling Stones or the Grateful Dead should know his name, since he was the tour manager for both acts at very critical times for each. Sam was deeply involved in putting the Hyde Park free concert for the Stones three days after Brian Jones had died, and went on to run the Bacchanalian 1969 Return of the Stones to America, which culminated in the infamous Altamont concert. He then went on to become the tour manager for the Grateful Dead until 1974, uh, which included the Europe 72 run considered by many deadheads as peak for the band. So that is two of the biggest and most influential bands in the world. We will discuss all of this today. And you can dig deeper with Sam in his 2010 book, You Can't Always Get What You Want, My Life with the Rolling Stones, The Grateful Dead, and Other Wonderful Reprobates. Sam, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Hey, uh, thank you very much. And uh, hello to all of your listeners. Hello to deadheads, people who love the Rolling Stones. And everybody else on the planet that's uh, happy to be alive like I am. And um, we're here. It's great to be here. I have uh, I could add to your little uh, bio on me, if I may. Please. I'm a, a cancer survivor. I had cancer three times. Oh. Beat that, I'm pleased to say, with the help of Providence and uh, the universe and a lot of love from a lot of people and a wonderful health system in Australia. I live in Australia. It's been a great life. I'm... Uh, 152, <laughs> rusting slowly, but we're there. I'm in America, loving being in America. I love America. I've got so many very dear American friends. As you probably know, I was in a long, strange trip. I'm the guy in the the brown van on the New York City skyline talking about the Grateful Dead. It's just extraordinary to come to America this year. and People stop me in the street, man. I used to look, look after rock and roll stars and, you know guard them, as it were, from uh, lots of lovely girls. Now all the lovely girls come and talk to me, so it's uh, it's pretty nice being here, and uh, people have been very sweet, and I get lots of cuddles and hugs and thanks, and uh, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm digging it like crazy. It's wonderful. Well, you answered my first question, which is, uh, how are you experiencing another bout of rock and roll celebrity? You sound like you're having a great time. Yeah, man, I, you know, I do my best, you know, but I, I draw the line at more than a thousand hugs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's great. Everybody, I mean, everybody has to have their limits. So yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. moderation in all things. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, we really wanted to talk to you because you really are one of the stars that jump out of the screen in the new Grateful Dead documentary by friend of the show Amir Bartlett. Thank you. Long strange yeah. trip. So it is just. I'll tell you, you you probably have my favorite line in the film which is the line about Americans go looking for America but an Englishman looking for England would be preposterous yeah it's very interesting that isn't it I mean you see I look for America myself I mean when I was young what was God a long time ago it's so long ago I can barely remember it ha uh-huh. ha oh, we'll but when I was young you know I read On the Road I mean On the Road is the single book that first made me want to be a writer, which I've been for many years now, made me want to be a writer and made me want to go and search for America. I've always been a traveler. I've never stayed in the same place for longer than two weeks for just about the whole of my life. So I, yeah, came to America, you know, it was just this great, wonderful adventure where you go and search for this place, what it means, where the significance of all this is, you know? And like, 
Yeah, it just the English just don't do that. It's not a thing you do in England. People don't realise England's a very tiny place. It's you know like it's like Rhode Island, man. I mean, there's nowhere in England that is uh, more than sixty miles from the sea. Wow, that's nowhere. crazy. I know people don't understand that. You know, yeah, so it's a tiny of place live there, but it's a small place, and it's been there for a long time. So they've had plenty of time to think about you know what it all means. And uh, right, it's also. I mean, there's a difference, of course, between, you know, English people and American people. Americans Americans are still very, very much concerned with, especially, you know, in the current political climate, but they've always been concerned ever since the founding of America. They've been very concerned about what America means, what its significance is, how Americans should be as a nation, mm-hmm. what are American values? And this is a kind of permanent dialogue that goes on in America. These things aren't necessarily agreed upon in England. In fact, they're not at all agreed upon in England. And I should say that I haven't lived in England for about 19 million years, <laughs> literally, since I was a kid virtually, right? Yeah, in England, these are just that, you know, everyone kind of assumes, if you like, in a kind of quiet inner way, that England is like this. People maintain this kind of stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. There's not the kind of dine that, if I may call it this, and this is not a put down of America, there's not the kind of vulgar dynamic that applies in the United States, where opposing views constantly swing to and fro and debate the great issues of the day. I mean, one of the things, you know, in England had a civil war, but the civil war in England was in the 1600s. Yeah, 1600s of Charles II, right. Yeah, and America had a civil war. Mm -hmm. But most of the scars of the English civil war have long since vanished. Not I think so many of the American. scars, you know, of the yep. American Civil War, whilst they're not in the forefront of contemporary life, nonetheless, hmm. those scars are still visible and play a kind of an over and covert role in American public life. So they're two very different places. America's, and that's what gives America its kind of dynamism. Yeah. In my yeah. opinion. It's constant you know, the, uh, backlash. Yeah, no, just a constant questioning. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people in America, I mean, other than the fact that Americans are absolutely convinced this is the greatest country on earth, everyone <laughs> kind of seems to think that, They've, which is yeah. great. You I'm know, sure bless everybody them. rolls their eyes when we say that. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm the greatest lover in rock and roll, too, but you know, I mean, we've all, you know, <laughs> I mean, I know this is a family show, but opinions are like our souls. Everybody's got one. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? Americans, you know, love their country. Of course they do. You know, fair enough. Everybody does. But, you know, uh, yeah, this dynamic here is very interesting. America's, you know, kind of a leader, if you like, uh, and in the forefront of the cultural life of the Western world on many levels, in like your contemporary life. And it's because it is so dynamic. And it's also because it, because it is in, in a kind of lovely, brash way. It's vulgar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Americans don't mind that, you know. I mean, they love having a, uh, having arguments with one another and debating how it should be. So people who aren't American, you know, love it. You know, it's like, wow, man, this is this is an exciting, interesting, vibrant place. And I should say, you know, in terms of rock and roll history, you know, the 1970s, immediately after Altamont, really, the 1970s, as we moved from the 60s into the 70s, the Grateful Dead. 
the band, the Allman Brothers, people like this, right? There was a period when the bands of America once more re-examined what it was like to be American, yeah. what it meant to be American. Mm -hmm. But they did it through music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People, yeah, you know, whilst the writers did it through writers writing, and the painters did it through paintings, the American musicians did it through music, and they went back and kind of reinterpreted the great American songbook. Dylan, I forgot, of course, to mention Dylan, who, of course, in many respects, led the charge. So that was a fantastically vibrant and wonderful time to be involved in the music business. And I completely, I guess I could put it down to bombs by accident. I was very fortunate that I worked with the Rolling Stones in the most vibrant period of their yep. creative life. Yep. And I worked with the Grateful Dead in the most vibrant period of their life. So what can I say? I mean, it's just been extraordinary, you know. And as a, yeah, I'm very fortunate person. Well, let's get to the basics, Sam. So you, you were born in 1943 outside of London uh, during the height of World War II when victory by the Allies was still very much up in the air. Yeah, I was born, let me tell you, I was born in Hatfield House where Queen Elizabeth I found that she was going to be um, queen. The, right. the Queen of England. And I'll tell you a funny story. At my book launch in London, a friend of mine bought this rather elegant looking man to um, see, see me, right? And he shook my hand and I said, oh, you know, I didn't catch his name. And he said, oh, my name is, I can't think of his first name, Eugene, I think it was, Eugene Cecil. So I said to him, oh, are you, um, you're not one of the Cecils from Hatfield House, are you? He said, yes, it's my home. <laughs> he was Lord home. Cecil, right? Wow. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, I was born there. You should have seen the look on his face. His, like, <laughs> his jaw dropped. He couldn't believe it. Oh, and you're he not did... blue blood, I take it. No, no, no. I think he thought I was his father's uh, illegitimate son or something. and was going to claim the throne or something. Yeah. No, but he was lovely. And uh, he didn't realize that during the war, it was turned into a maternity yeah. hospital. Right. Right. And what the Brits did, the Brits are cunning little bastards. They, um, what they did was they took all the stately homes, right, which the Germans, once they conquered England, were going to take over. Mm-hmm. And the Germans, you know, Goering was going to have this one, Hitler was going to have that one, Goebbels was going to have that one, this one was for Himmler. So the Germans didn't bomb the stately homes, right, because they wanted to have them when they took over the country. Oh. So the Brits went, ah, we'll take the mums out of the where they're bombing the cities and we'll put them in the, make the stately homes, maternity hospitals, and that's why I was born there. Knowing that the, uh, the height of the Third Reich was not going to bomb them. I get it. I get it. So yeah. your father was killed in the war. And, and my mother, yeah. And you were put up for adoption. Uh, I was an orphan and I was adopted, yeah. Yeah, and luckily you were raised by a couple of kind-hearted communists. And yeah, I, I, amazing. I, I bring this up because most Americans are probably gasping right now, especially at the time. And I was really intrigued by your telling of this in the book. So tell us about growing up in that world. Well, I grew up in an amazing world, man. You know what I mean? These people were lovely. They, you know, I was, and they never hit me as a child. They were, uh, they were very kind. I had a kind of fractured childhood, apart from my beginnings where was in an orphanage. You know, they got me when I was about three. My adoptive father died when I was eight. It was all 
pretty chaotic and I went to other people. My mother was working. My mother was a trade unionist, um, worked for the first union that got equal pay for women in the British Civil Service in 1956, I think it was. So I grew up in this very radical household, surrounded by books. There, were, there weren't communists under the beds, there were books under the bed. There were Bingo. books everywhere. So if it told me anything about communists, it's that there are some kind communists in the world, number one. Uh, number two, it taught me that um, I'm definitely not a communist, that's for sure. <laughs> Somebody like me would last five minutes in a you know, communist uh, country, and uh, so I've, I've never been a, um, a lefty in a that sense. You know? Card-carrying but I would de- yeah. I would describe myself, I mean, politically, if you like, as a kind of, kind of like an old-fashioned San Francisco Democrat, in a way. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So that put me in, that was one of the funny things that put me and Jerry very, became very close because immediately after Altamont he invited me to stay in his house bless him you know mm. and uh, so I went to live with Jerry and because uh, he was very interested in the in how the Rolling Stones organized uh, themselves as a band and one of the things that we discovered that we had mutually was that his grandmother's name was Tilly and my grandmother's name was Tilly Connection and points. that his grandmother was an organizer for the uh, laundry workers union Mm-hmm. And my mother was a, a union organizer, so we had some things in common. So I was raised, as I say, in a pretty progressive household. And, you know, I think it was beneficial to me in some respects, you know. It gave That's... me, if you like, an alternative view of the world. And it made me realize that, you know, not everybody agrees on how the world is or how the world should be run. No, but, uh, you know, obviously you became a reader because then you went to Cambridge and you graduated with honors as a qualified teacher. And I did, absolutely. you did some work with, with disabled children too, right? Well, I, yeah, I worked actually, I qualified as a teacher of emotionally disturbed children, which held me in good stead for when I finally, you know, <laughs> went into the rock and roll world. Because at that time, you know, I was running that. Yeah, Yeah, man. Oh, shit. I knew all about that. (laughs) Yeah, I I was running a folk club and doing stuff like that. You know, Paul Simon and people like that played at it. And uh, yeah, I was doing that and being a student. And then I was a teacher and doing rock and roll shows. And it just became, uh, it was impossible, man. I earned six six pounds at that time. That was about $12 a week as a teacher. And I was making $20 a night just doing uh, rock and roll shows. So it was just, you know, pointless. So you decide to basically chuck in the standard Englishman's life of middle class and uh, move into rock and roll. So yes, why, why the change? Well, one was a damn sight more exciting than the other. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the pay as a teacher was terrible. And I got the bug, man. I got the bug like so many people in the 60s in England did. I loved uh, folk music. I loved the blues. In fact, when I was 15, I went up to London, uh, went to a part of London, you know, uh, to see Ramley Jack Elliott on my birthday. And we became friends then. I've been friends with Ramley Jack ever since I was 15 years old. I'm now 74. Jack's about 155. (laughs) We're still good buddies, you know. I just love playing the guitar. I wanted to be a guitar player. I was never quite good enough. But I, yeah, I just found the whole thing of, fa- of rock and roll fascinating, as just about every teenager in England did, and America for that I, matter. I know what you mean. I totally know what you mean. So you go to so London. So I got the bug. Yeah, you go to London, and I, I think you started working at All Saints Church Hall. I uh, did. We do three concerts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, famous for birthing Pink Floyd and others. Uh, That's and right, it, indeed. In, in fact, you got to know Pink Floyd's drummer. Nick Mason at the time. 
Yes, I did. We became good friends. I can became friends with all the Floyd. I mean, the Floyd at that time, they were architecture students at Regent Street Polytechnic. And, right. Uh, then the rock and roll bug hit them too. I mean, I can remember Sid Barrett, who was in the Floyd at that time, standing on stage calling out the chord changes to songs, which they struggled through, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they were, it, was, it was a wonderful, great time to be alive. I mean, of course it was our youth. You know, everyone thinks their teenage years were the Are best the years special. of their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. You know, uh, as we say in, in the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, uh, you know, there are some giant cultural changes that occur during this period of time. And this particular massive, art form. Massive. Massive, yes. And, and I don't think people have quite realized this. And the art form that commented on it more than any other was rock and roll. So that's, that's what we're trying to explain. Yeah. That's true, but I mean, I would just just caution you that I think it was across all forms, from dance to painting. You have a look at the, you know, art, man, painting itself, you know. Mm. Whole, the whole genre of painting changed, you know. The whole genre of writing changed. Oh, film, everything, yes, definitely. Everything, man, yeah. It was a, so, yeah, this was a massive, massive shift in the consciousness of the Western world. And, of course, we all know, We're still in a sense, still why that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well. it happened because the youth of that period were, well, for us, let's be specific about it, they were all taking LSD. Not all of them, but the, the, certainly the shakers, movers and shakers were. I think there are two main points. I, I think you're right, and we, we actually bring up uh, LSD as a big factor in that, not only in the changing of the music, but changing the society itself, but also the fact that this generation, for the first time, had to live under the threat of nuclear annihilation. And Absolutely. That's, that, 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 that's a, a crazy factor. psychosis to deal with. So Yeah, and, and those, uh, I mean, there were people who considered the fact that LSD was discovered in 1943, the year of my birth. I had nothing to do with it, needless to say. But they considered LSD as a kind of the antidote to the, you yeah. know, mutually assured destruction consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, that had a huge effect. I mean, it produced, you know, for, for Pink Floyd, it produced uh, The Grateful Dead. It produced all kinds of wonderful music mm-hmm. and art and painting and writing, as I say. And it did produce a shift in Western consciousness. And I think what we're seeing today in the West, in some respects, is a kind of reactionary political situation that's trying to bury that. I agree. I agree. And you we're know, not, we're not going to let the, that happen. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it, I've, you know, I mean, my mother the used to out say... Of the bottle. You can't put that thing back. My mother used to say, which I always love, you know, uh, if voting made any difference, they'd make it illegal. So I've never actually <laughs> voted in my life. I'm not part and parcel of the political process, but I, um, I'm concerned about how things are going in the world, of course, and I love the world, and I certainly don't want to see it, see it being destroyed, and as somebody who lost his family in the war, I'm opposed to war. Wars, uh, this ain't a good move, so um, I'm a peaceful person, you know, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't want that to happen. But right. I do think, you know, that the, the 60s uh, did produce an amazing change in the consciousness of the Western world. Uh, we are both in agreement there. So then you become associated with Alexis Corner. Talk I about did. Alexis and his influence on British rock. This is really important. Well, yeah, Alexis Corner was amazing. You see, he came he came to um, 
the church hall where we were doing we were doing shows that were free. You could just give a donation if you had any money, and if you didn't, you just you know you could come in for nothing. And Alexis loved it, and he used to come down there and play, and that's how I became friends with him, right? And you know, one time I was walking along Queensway, which is a road in London, you know, at that time, and I saw him. I met him. You know, he said, "Oh, hi, man, come and have a cup of tea. Come back to my house." So I was sitting on this sofa, you know, started talking to him, and he and I started talking to him about the blues because he was a blues guitar player and he's single-handedly responsible just about for the whole London blues scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about that and he said, oh, yeah, you see that sofa you're sitting on? I said, yeah. He said, Big Bill Brunsey slept there, who was like one of my idols, man. I just was like, I couldn't believe it. And I became good friends with Alexis. He was perfect and uh, he needed a tour manager, right? And I wanted to be a tour manager. That's where I really wanted to be. So my first tour managing job that I never got paid for uh, was with Alexis. I went on yeah. tour with him to Europe. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. You know, I yeah. carried the guitars, I think it was, uh, basically. I two weeks, and uh, that was your first professional job, right? Yeah, it was. And Alexis taught me everything he knew, which was, uh, yeah, it was a trip, man. It was fantastic. And I just knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life, you know. So you come back and you go to, you get hooked up with Black Hill Enterprises and things yep. really take off for you from there. Yeah, I was just a kind of odd job boy, really, you know, doing productions, doing shows. And, yeah, they were lovely people and they were at the forefront of the whole kind of British counterculture. And they were amazing. They had, like, you know, uh, they were an agency. So they had, like, the crazy world of Alpha Brown, the third year band, people like that, Mark mm-hmm. Boland and Pink Floyd. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it was an experience. It was an amazing, vibrant time in London. And then they somehow or other, and I don't quite know how, managed to persuade the Parks Department to do live shows in Hyde Park in the middle of London, which is like Central Park or Golden Gate Park in San Francisco or Central Park in New York. Oh, I, I know. The first time I went to London, we landed very early, and the first thing we did was walk around Hyde Park while my imagination recreated the events of the Serpent. Beautiful Paris. there, you know. It's a oh, beautiful it's park right in the middle of London, and uh, yeah, we so. I was the kind of guy that put that all together. Yeah, I think the first show was in 1968. But it let's, was. Let's talk about the Hyde Park July 5th, 1969 show. Um, yeah. I believe King Crimson opened that show. If I'm they right. did, and on my uh, on my page, Sam Cutler, author, in uh, on Facebook, you can actually hear me introducing the show, and I think there's even footage of it. Maybe not footage, but the show's there. And, uh, yeah, that was an amazing show, and it was a wonderful time. Everybody uh, was lovely, you know, and uh, things just went on from there, man. It was just it was just such a beautiful, peaceful, loving, alternative time to be alive and young in London. And, uh, yeah, very special. Yeah, I think you had close to 200,000 people there at that show. And Something like that. Some amazing <laughs> number, yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah, uh, everybody got along great. I think the, yeah, news, the we media never... was surprised that uh, there were no problems, and that became the yeah. story. It was also, I think, uh, two days after Brian uh, Jones had, uh, had died. It was just a very poignant and emotional time. Uh, and uh, yeah, Mick Red Shelley, you know, and I think you were responsible for getting a bunch of white butterflies, right? I was, yeah. Which poor old things. Not a good day to be a butterfly on. They didn't last for long, but it was a it was a kind of very poignant memorial to Brian. You know, everybody was very 
sensitive to the occasion, you know. The Rolling Stones have been busted and persecuted by the cops and everything, you know, and uh, there were no police at it at all. And, but no one was, there was no problems, there were no fights, it was all very mellow. Everyone uh, made it just a gorgeous, beautiful, special day. One person uh, was taken ill, and the two old ladies that ran the, the Red Cross medical facilities that we had, that was it. They gave him a cup of tea and a biscuit, and he was all right. And it was just an incredible day, uh, unbelievable. And I acted as the MC, and there's a this film of me doing all that on my uh, on my page on Facebook that you can go look at. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely memorable. Uh, Mick actually came to a previous show that I'd done with the first show that Blind Faith ever did. Right. And he came to that. And About a he month was just, before, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and he was just amazed by the, you know, the number of people at that and the fact everyone behaved and had a lovely time. And the Stones hadn't played for a long time, man. Brian was, had been kind of out of it, you know what I mean? Mm, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Keith had had his problems and nothing was happening and they needed to get back into the kind of public eye. Yeah, they were, they were kind of in, in danger no they were just in danger of kind of being out of touch mm-hmm. you know and kind of like at that time the only person that was a kind of big rock and roll star that was really like you know still involved on the street level was Paul McCartney who was a groovy guy believe me he was at those shows and uh, McCartney had uh, put money into Indica which was the first hippie uh, alternative hippie bookshop in London he put money into Release which was a an organization set up to legally represent people who didn't have any lawyers and who'd been busted for smoking pot or whatever. And he uh, he used to go to parties and you see him walking down the King's Road and he was really mellow. And at that time, you know, John Lennon was living with Cynthia in a mansion in Weybridge and hiding out and Mick didn't really go out in public for whatever reason, you know, and, and nor did Keith. Keith was hiding away doing whatever <laughs> Keith was doing. So, yeah, it was very special time. I've forgotten what we were actually referring to here. Yeah, oh, so he, yeah, yeah. So Mick, Mick came to the Blind Faith show. Yeah, and was amazed by it. Amazed that it was, you know, possible to do that stuff because the Rolling Stones, when the Rolling Stones did shows, you know, the girls all went nuts, and most of their shows ended in a riot. Yeah, similar. But they to hadn't the really played for like almost three years prior to that. Yeah. Yeah, they needed to play. So Mick talked to me about what was involved, you know, how how they could do it. So I had several conversations with him about it, and yeah, I said, man, this is easy. We'll organise it for you. You want to do it? We'll do it. Yeah, the original. They idea, wanted to do it. Yeah, the and they never looked back. The original idea was to to introduce Mick Taylor, not as a memorial. Indeed, that was Taylor. the whole idea. Was to yeah, that, and then of course Brian unfortunately died and. It just seemed, you know, I mean, how could you do it without not, you know, making it a uh, memorial to Brian? Well, and by the way, Long Strange Trip is not the first rock documentary you've been involved in. Uh, actually, the first was uh, The Stones in the Park from 1969, which is, uh, yeah. I think, Granada Television fit the bill to put on The Stones show that, uh, that July 5th. They did. Yeah, and you are obviously uh, in that, uh, and uh, you act as the MC. Now, let me ask you, because I can't remember, is that the first time you introduced the Rolling Stones as the world's greatest rock and roll band? 
Uh, no, I didn't. I don't think I introduced them as the world's greatest rock and roll band. In fact, I didn't at that show. At that show, I just introduced them as the Rolling Stones. That line, for yeah. some reason, God knows why, came up in America. It seems like, you know, it was a vulgar claim that was more appropriate probably to America than it was to England. People in England, if you said that in England, would have said at that time, would have said, oh, absolutely <laughs> not. On. Preposterous. <laughs> right. Goodness right. gracious. What a vulgar claim to make. So didn't make that kind of claim in England. The but Americans in, loved it. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I, I can tell you a funny story about that, if you like. Please, please. We were on the way to... Fort Collins, Colorado, I think it was, right? And we're flying down there and we're talking about the show and everything. It was going to be the first show of the 1969 American tour. And uh, they realized, you know, uh, that they hadn't, you know, got an MC and got anyone to introduce the band, you know? So, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. And Mick said, well, Sam will do it. I was sitting next to Mick, and I said, yeah, man, I'll do it, no problem, you know. So, okay, that's good, you know, Sam will handle that like it's, I handled everything else, basically. <laughs> um, I wasn't handling the money. Ronnie Snyder handled right, the money. Right, 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 Alan uh, Klein's That was nephew. Alan Klein's nephew. He was organizing that end of the tour. So I was, okay, and I was looking after the band, right, mm-hmm. you know, like personal tour manager, making sure they were covered. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it came to the show, and, like, you know, five minutes before we're due to go on stage, I was just like, okay, now, Sam, you know, everything in the, with me has always been like that. I'll, you know, cross the bridge when you get to it kind of thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, what am I going to go on, you know, what am I going to say? So I ran on stage and went, ladies and gentlemen, and finally we got it all together, you know what I mean? The greatest rock and roll band in the world because... Before, we'd, um, at a rehearsal, there was these two gorgeous girls standing there, and we were rehearsing on the um, set of the uh, film. They, they they shoot horses, don't they? It was this kind of Chinese dance hall kind of set. Uh-huh. That was at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, California. That's where we were doing our pre-tour rehearsal. Right. And the band were playing, and they were dreadful, man. They were just so bad. I was like, oh, my God, I hope this is going to come together. You know what I mean? Oh. And uh, these two girls were standing there, two beautiful girls, uh, sisters, the dynamic duo, we called them. They were hanging out with us, and, oh, boy, they were just two gorgeous hotties. And I said to them, what do you think of them? You know, what do you reckon on this? You know, And they, they both, like, with stars in their eyes, went... Oh, they're the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And I just thought to myself, yeah, right, I don't think so. But anyway, I ran on stage, and for some reason, that just came out of my subconscious, and I went, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones. The place went nuts, the band played and everything. They weren't very good. But anyway, everyone loved it. And... uh, Afterwards, when Mick came off stage and he saw me, he goes, I want to talk to you, man, you know. Okay, you know, we went in this room, just him and I, and he says to me, he says to me, man, you know, don't call us the greatest rock and roll band in the world, man. That's really embarrassing, you know. And I looked at him and I said, hey, man, either you are or you're not. You know what I mean? Hello, you know, because I said it as a kind of challenge, you know, for them to rise to. 
It's stuck, and uh, there they are, the greatest they, rock and roll band in the world. They I still are to been, this day. I believe they've been introduced uh, as that uh, pretty much since then. Uh, Ever I've, since, yeah. I've seen them on just about every tour since 81. I usually get forced into it because I'm like, oh, what do I want to go see a bunch of old guys try to recreate their youth, and I walk away every time going, world's greatest rock and roll band. Still, yeah, man. still got it. Yeah, they are, because, I mean, I, I say that because the Grateful Dead, to me, aren't, you know, just merely a rock, they ain't a rock and roll band. The Grateful Dead is something way more way than different. that. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Right. So, but the Rolling Stones are, to me, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, always have been. They kind of, in a sense, invented how to do it. Bless them. I love them. We're still friends, you know. Yeah. After all these years, you know what I mean? They've uh, they got no bone to pick with me, man. I've been loyal to them. I love them. I mean, I know shit about the Rolling Stones, man, that would bury them. But, um, <laughs> you know, if you're a, well, a tour manager, a tour, being a tour manager is like being a person that works for the Queen of England. Right. If you work for the Queen of England, you know, you don't tell, you know, the newspapers stuff about the Queen of England. Yeah, you know how to keep your mouth news. shut and be discreet. Yeah. And you can't possibly be a tour manager at the level that I've been without, you know, being able to be discreet. And I shall go to my grave happily keeping secrets about both the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. That's part of the job is being discreet and, and keeping your mouth shut about stuff that's got nothing to do with the world. Good man. Yeah, so, absolutely. I, I want to add one thing to the Hyde Park show. That Please do. Come, come yeah, up man. later. And that is that stage was two meters or about six feet high. And I think yeah, that's important indeed. for later. So, and because of that's the success, vital. Yeah. And, and I invented that, too. You did. You did. You put that I designed together. It. Yes. Yeah. So, and because of your success working at Black Hill, you began to work directly with the Stones. And I think the... Well, after that show, to, yeah. they were putting together the American tour. One of the things they realized, right, was Chipmunk was doing all the production and technical shit, right? But mm -hmm. there wasn't anyone to look after the band. Yeah, and Chip had and worked band, with, uh, with Woodstock and had done the Woodstock. Yeah, he did Woodstock uh, and all that crap. You know, and uh, which was a disaster that was turned into a you know an epic kind of journey by everyone because everybody was stoned out of their, you know their minds and had yeah. a good time anyway. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, because of that show in uh, in uh, London. The Stones asked me to look after them, basically, do the personal stuff of looking after them. So let's move to America, to the West, yep. land of hopes and dreams, to California. Uh, Indeed. You, you are the official tour manager for the Rolling Stones for their first big tour in three years. It I've got to tell you a funny story. Yeah. So, I'm so I've got the job. Wow. You know, so I'm going to go and see my mum because I'm going to America with the Rolling Stones. I'm like, man, I'm I'm walking around one foot off the ground. You know what I mean, uh, man? Uh, I'm like in hog heaven. I am, man. You know, wow. So I go and see my mum, you know, and uh, I'm talking to her about it. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm working for the Rolling Stones and we did this show in the Hyde Park, man. And there were like, you know, 200,000 people at the show, and my mother she goes, well, there were, you know, half a million people at the Chartist demonstration <laughs> in Hyde Park in, you know, 1865 or something. So, yeah, 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 but, you know, it was great. The music was fantastic, and no one got arrested. And my mother looked down her nose at me and said, well, of course not, you know. I mean, people are supposed to behave in public, darling. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, but I'm going to America, and I've got a credit card. And she looked at me and said, a credit card? She didn't even know what a credit card was. 
So what you know, and so I explained what a credit card was, and she said, "My God, you know, you you can't spend money that you don't have." You know, the whole concept of it was alien to her. So I'm, you know, going on, I'm going, you know, about this and everything. I said, Mum, come on, man, this is the greatest rock and roll band in the world. They're fantastic, you know. You know, come on, aren't you pleased? And she looked down her nose at me and said, yes, but it's not a proper job, darling. Yeah, she didn't get it. And most, of course, you know, most people of my mother's generation loved the Beatles, you know. The Beatles had long hair, but it was clean long hair. Mm -hmm. The Rolling Stones were the people your mum hated. Uh, The Black Cats, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? The Black uh, Cats, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, so that was funny. My mum and I didn't talk for a while after that. And uh, I went to America with the Rolling Stones. So I had to throw that little tale in there. Well, your mom and my mom would get along just great. So, <laughs> so the so the Mazels are brought in by Mick to film what is to become Gimme Shelter. Uh, that's the second rock doc that you are in. So the yeah. film really focuses on a high point and a bottomless pit. First, well, is... yeah, I mean, the Maisels, I mean, that idea for filming the tour, you know what I mean? The Rolling Stones didn't have any money. Alan Klein had tied up all their money. Alan Klein's nephew, Ronnie, left Alan, you know, to work with the Stones, for which Alan Klein never forgave him. I think they were eventually reconciled just before Alan died. And, you know, they were doing this show, you know, the, the tour, you know, and tours like tours do they're expensive so they wanted to try and you know recoup the money from the tour and the idea of you know doing the film rate basically was like they'd done the you know the deal for um the film in london you know the revenue from the film would uh, you know offset the cost of the tour or help to offset the cost for the tour mm-hmm. so that's where that idea came from and they started filming the tour yeah yeah, and then uh, let's see. So first, Madison Square Garden, and unlike Hyde Park, where the Stones weren't really that great, the Stones are in fine form there. Well, now they're going to America. Now it's like, okay, they've got Mick Taylor. It's time to get serious. And, you know, one of the things about the Rolling Stones is great. They're not like a particularly well-rehearsed band. The Rolling Stones are a very human band, man. They start playing at a, a show, you know, uh, and even now, to this day, you know, it's like it kind of struggles and it fights with itself and it takes a few numbers to get there, but it slowly morphs into this incredible dynamic, you know, of these guys playing and just becomes like this fantastic band and it's as i say it's very very human and uh it's part of the magic of their shows it yeah, and, and stumbles 19- into it stumbles into greatness you know what i mean i totally do and in 1969 I, I mean right there there are they're just coming into the peak of where they're at from from there we get get your yayas out and the stones will release let it bleed later in 1969 they are in the middle of taking the rock and roll crown away from the beatles at this time they are and i mean i'm pleased to say i introduced the stones on great you know get your yayas out and uh, yeah at their live show they were fantastic, man. But they always have somehow been the definition of what constitutes, you know, a rock and roll band. 
Yeah. Well, they got all that the right not, elements. Yeah. Say that too. They got yeah. all the right elements. I mean, yeah. good steady and drummer. That. You know, yeah. the the amazing, uh, unique sounding guitar player, a second yeah. hand who can do anything, especially with when when Brian Jones, the multi instrumentalist, and then you know, obviously having Mick and now Ronnie uh, come as the sidemen, uh, and and of course, you know, let's face it, the greatest front man, uh, certainly the greatest white front man in rock and roll, and, and Mick Jagger. You just can't you can't beat that. There's but, only one Mick, baby. But first, like any hero story, we need to have our trial by fire, and that is Altamont. So please give us your impressions on Altamont. Well, it was a disaster. It wasn't the Rolling Stones show. It was actually organized by the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead organized. The Grateful Dead loved the Rolling Stones, man. It was just this perfect fantasy, man, was to do do a free show with the Rolling Stones. So they, you know, they put all that together. It turned into a disaster. It changed the life of the Grateful Dead. It changed the life of the Rolling Stones, man. I mean, no question about that. And it was it was dreadful for everyone concerned. It was not a nice event on any level and uh, yeah I mean nobody had a good time I don't worry about that it was awful but it was a peculiarly American aggressive thing you know and uh, that was brought about by bad drugs bad vibes a, an impossibly bad sight a, a stage that was completely in the wrong place physically and, and really uh, there was only was, there was, was only a knee knee high, yeah. and uh, the Rolling Stones were expected to play on a stage, you know, that was knee high in the middle of three hundred thousand people. It's Impossible. Crazy. Now, I, I remember seeing the film when I was a kid, and it reminded me of a scene straight out of Dante. Yeah. Well, man, when you're the tour manager, you, you know, you can't just go, I'm going home, sod it, you know, <laughs> no. you have to deal with it, don't you? Yeah, I think you, I were, to... you were up for like 48 hours straight, uh, even before the show began. Yeah, more than that. Yeah, the whole week, I was in, uh, I was in San Francisco for the week prior to that show and dealing with it and I uh, had very little sleep and was exhausted, yeah, before the show even began. The Rolling Stones were exhausted. They'd been in recording in uh, Muscle Shoals in Alabama. They'd had very little rest, and uh, yeah, it was just chaos, man. It was, it was, it was a drag. But it had, you know, strangely, very beneficial effects because it changed the way in which the Rolling Stones toured, and it changed the Grateful Dead. I mean, no question about it. The Grateful Dead were very embarrassed about the the whole way. It, turned out the counterculture was embarrassed by it you know it was what was supposedly going to be this wonderful thing turned to shit in our hands basically and you know we the grateful dead jerry in embarrassment offered me shelter from the storm immediately after it and i went to stay in his house and we spent endless hours talking about how to organize a rock and roll band right and Garcia prior and the Grateful Dead prior to Altamont really hadn't spent much time on kind of organization. Organization was kind of in a way a kind of dirty word to the counterculture. Yeah. Although, of course, they did, you know, organize things as best they could. Fun was much more the, uh, the order of the day. You know, organization was something that, you know, kind of was what the army did and the government and 
stuff. You know what I mean? There wasn't a really a kind of counterculture version of how to organize things. You know, the way in which bands had evolved was very kind of ad hoc and Oh, it was planning, an plan- to the, the hippie ideal of... Uh, yeah, you know, planning was a kind of dirty right. word. Right. So, you know, what happened was in, uh, I think, why the Grateful Dead hired me, the Grateful Dead hired me in the, in the fond belief, which I thought was possible, that there could be an alternative way of planning being a band, where people could still have fun, you know, and still, you know, um, actually make a living. I mean, <clears throat> let's face it, you know, when I joined the Grateful Dead, they had no money. Mickey's father had just ripped them off yeah, for a, a huge advance from the record company, so they were in massively in debt. And the only way they were going to continue to survive as a band was, you know, to get organized. Yeah, so and this, you talk a lot about the differences between running a military operation like the Stones and then the radical hippies of the dead in, in the movie Long Strange Trip. And indeed. in the book, yeah, yeah. So, indeed. Uh, so you it was had, a huge yeah, challenge. I, I can imagine uh, because, uh, first of all, you had to deal with not just the members of the band but the family, right? Yep. There was a considerable opposition to it from uh, old, old ladies, from, uh, you know, from all kinds of people, yeah, from the counterculture itself, from people who thought the Grateful Dead in some weird way were like selling out, from people who thought that music should be free. I was dumb enough to take on the challenge. I mean, I rose to the challenge and the band rose to the challenge. The band, yeah, wanted to survive and they had to, you know, get real about what was necessary to survive. And one of the things they had to do in order to survive was make money, pay their taxes and get organized. Yeah, not an easy thing to uh, get all those folks to agree to, huh? Not at all. A hugely difficult thing. I mean, we used to have... I mean, I, there was meet, meetings, you know, with 80 people in them, and it was ridiculous. And, and uh, yeah. So it was Eventually, all on consensus then? Well, it was at that time, and I was, uh, you know, and have always been a, very, a great believer in uh, leadership. I mean, consensus is fine, you know what I mean? But people need to agree this is, you know, the direction we're going in. This is, you know, let's go this way and da-da-da-da-da. And Jerry, of course, you know, whilst on stage, he was complete, you know, like, Here's the idea, follow this idea, and had no problem with uh, leading it musically. He didn't want to be, you know, out front and be the leader and persuade everyone that that, what he wanted was the way to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was very much a person that didn't do that. He didn't want to do that. But I, you know, I've never had any problem with telling people, look, this is what should happen. Yeah, you're the type of man that uh, will fill a vacuum if it exists. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm what they call in the military leadership material, sorry, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I got you. I'm a natural general, I I, I ain't no private. No, no. But you did have a great road crew in people like Ramrock, Jackson, and Parrish. Yeah, but uh, I mean, uh, Parrish wasn't a member of the crew when I first joined the Grateful Dead. No, he wasn't. No, he came later. The great, the crew of the Grateful Dead when I joined was uh, Ramrod, Johnny Hagen, Jackson, three guys from Pendleton, Oregon, cowboys, mm-hmm. hard as nails, tough, psychedelic cowboys. You know, mm-hmm. you know, they knew that it had to be uh, organized. You know, they kind of they wanted a form of kind of psychedelic organization if you like 
And that's what we did. We got it organized, man. We invented a way of being a band. I gotcha. So let's and at talk. the same time, you know, being able to stay high and have fun. Always, uh, always important. Have fun. That was Jerry's big thing. I think that was Jerry's big... total requirement. It's Whatever we were doing, it had to have fun. And I used yeah. to add, well, and it's got to make money. We need money to survive, etc., etc. Yeah. Et got to pay for the funds some way or another. So. Well, we got to pay for the money that uh, Lenny stole. Yeah. That had to be replaced, you know what I mean? Mm. We were deeply in debt to the to the record company. Out of all that was a discussion I had with Jerry, for example, and I, I claim my bit of, of the glory, as it were, of working man's dead. Out of all that came, a dis when I was talking with Jerry, Jerry once asked me, How, why don't we make any money from our records, right? And I said, well, one of the reasons you don't is because you're making the wrong kind of records. You're making records that are kind of self-indulgent games of the Grateful Dead, you know, like playing with this huge toy called a recording studio. studio. Yeah, what you, you need to do, man, yeah, yeah. what you need to do is write the songs before you go in the studio, have them well rehearsed, go in the studio and make an album in two weeks instead of, you know, months. You know, stop experimenting with the whole thing of uh, the studio, you know, have somebody engineer and produce, stroke produce it and you make the music, have it all together, go in there and do it really quickly, man, and produce this hip hot record. And that's what they did. Jerry wrote the songs with Hunter. They were on, on a roll. They re-examined, you know, that was the period when they were re-examining what it means to be an American and what is American. American music and create a new kind of music, you know, that's, uh, you know, coterminous co with the consciousness of the early 70s and to go in there and do it sharp and sweet and Steve Barncard uh, uh, recorded it brilliantly and they made this album that was fantastic and they re recorded the drums and bass and everything and the rhythm guitar, you know, that was recorded all at once and then they did the overdubs over the top of that and it was brilliant and it was uh, finally Warner Brothers had a record that sounded right yeah. and was fresh and amazing and uh, the Grateful Dead finally produced an album that sold a brilliant amazing album in working man's dead and uh yeah we uh we never looked back did we no no and then let's talk a little bit about you on tour with them specifically europe 72 and i want to talk about festival express right well festival express was amazing yeah you know and uh, a great fun trip that lost a fortune but it was a lot of fun, you know. And uh, that was kind of, like, in a way, the last kind of great. That was 1970, dead. I believe. It was uh, July 1970, 1970 right. Yeah. Right. That and, was, and so, just so the, the folks know, that was a, a, a trip that people like the, the Grateful Dead, the band, Janis Joplin. Uh, new writers. Uh, new writers of the Purple Stage. Uh, Buddy Cage. Buddy Guy, yeah, yeah. Buddy Guy rather, yeah. And Buddy Cage, of course, was uh, on that tour with Ian and Sylvia. He was a pedal steel player for them. Uh, Flying Burrito Brothers were on it, too. Yeah, uh, That's it was right. a trip across Canada. Uh, yep. the, the, the point was that it on was On a private train. On a private train. And, and it's really about the musicians that really have this great time uh, in between the shows. And some of the shows were difficult because, again, there's the free concert idea comes up uh, uh, over yeah. and over. People demanding to get in for free. But the other point I want to make is that... that 
that was a that was a rock doc that came out in 2003. And surprise, surprise, Sam, you're in that one as well. I am indeed, and I mean, I played a central role in that tour. The guy who put the tour on was brilliant. He had a wonderful vision, although I think he talked himself up a bit in the, in the documentary, um, the Festival Express documentary. I mean, he didn't really, I don't think, give enough credit to the Grateful Dead. We saved his ass in Toronto. Yes, you did. Where there was huge fights with people demanding that the music be free. Mm-hmm. And we organized an alternative concert, you know, to assuage the people that didn't want to pay to come into the the Festival Express uh, concerts, you know. And the people that, uh, you know, demanded the music that be free, uh, you know, rioted. And it was it was very heavy time. Anyway, we, we did our bit to make it, you know, good and uh, make up for that and to try and get people to realize, you know, you can still pay for music, you know, a reasonable price and the musicians can get paid and have a livelihood and everyone can have fun. But it was an amazing, amazing event. But that was the last kind of gasp of the old way of the Grateful Dead, for sure, playing. You know, they realized we had to get organized. We had to get properly organized. You know, we couldn't just be everybody on acid, which was great and all that. But we needed to be, you know, we needed to plan. We needed to be together. We needed more equipment, guys, all kinds of stuff that we needed. And I I led the charge, man. I mean, I'm not a believer in leading from the rear. You know what I mean? I no. led the charge and... Uh, took my lumps from the front and told people how to do it, how it should be done. And uh, at that time, you know, in a sense, I was a rock and roll trainer, you know. The the Grateful Dead had to learn how to be a band and, uh, yeah, do things somewhat differently whilst at the same time not compromising their values by any means and and making sure that what they did was um, fun for them personally, that... uh, that they're, you know, we always had the thing, man, you know, that the Grateful Dead, you know, were selling tickets to people. We were set, set at, at a low price. We always kept a low ticket price. We always insisted on that. But we were inviting people to a place to come and experience this sacred thing called music. Yeah. It had to be right. We didn't want to invite people into a place that was a trap you know, where they'd be busted or they wouldn't be looked after, you know, and mm-hmm. where they wouldn't be safe. So we spent a lot of time making sure that those basic things were were dealt with and covered. And if you read in my book, I spent a lot of time talking about what a tour manager actually should be doing. Oh, and during course, the show and, and yeah, constantly, uh, constant vigil, uh, vigilance. Yeah, and being... Being aware of the fact that if you put on a show, regardless of who the band is, what you've done is you've invited people to come and share your music. So you're responsible for them. Mm -hmm. In teaching, it's called you're in loco parentis, which means legally you're in place of the parents. And that's what you are in a band. You're in loco parentis, man. You're in place of the people who normally care for people. Now you're caring for them. It's not you're just entertaining them and, you know, to hell with them, you know, and charging them for the privilege. You're, you know, you're responsible for people. That's a great heart uh, you got there, Sam. Uh, And you were able to do all of this while sometimes on acid, but you invented what nowadays people are calling microdosing. 
Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I wanted to get high, for sure. So the way we got high, I mean, I, I personally didn't invent it, but uh, the bear invented it, actually. It was like a thing, you know, like, if you want to meet God, then you need to take 200 micrograms, and you can go and have a conversation with God and whip around the planets. But, I mean, I had to count money and deal with the police and everything else. So, yeah, we used to take a drop, you know, everybody, the band and all the crew, me, and uh, that would be more like 40 micrograms so so it was bear who really kind of said hey this is the way to kind of be able to yeah he said this is this is the way to do this we can continue to do you know to get high and we can take care of business you know since you brought it up there are two friendships that i i I do want you to talk a little bit about and bear was one of them the uh you know what what i like to call the dark lord of the underground because uh man that guy did so many different things pretty amazing and then also you had a friendship with uh, janice joplin i did janice loved the grateful dead she loved jerry you know everybody loved jerry of course and she was very special because jerry lived on the same street in larksburg just down the road from janice i walked out one day and Janice and I had had our run-ins. I threw her out the the Rolling Stones dressing room in Madison Square Garden. She came, she was drunk and loud and being Janice, you know. And then there was the, the dressing room was just packed with people. The band was due to go on in like 15 minutes. And Mick said to me, please, man, empty the dressing room, you know what I mean? We need, we're going to go on, right? You know what I mean? And Jimi Hendrix was just sitting in the corner. He said, look, get everyone out of here, please. You know, leave Jimmy. He's okay. He's cool, you know, because Jimmy was all it's very cool yeah leave jimmy you know just get everyone out of here except our people you know so i did that and there was janice you know janice is going do you know who i am you know and i said man you know sorry janice everyone has to leave the band's going on in 15 minutes please so she went she went and complained to keith she said your two managers trying to you know throw me out of the dressing room and keith you know no he's not trying to throw you out janice don't be silly you know what i mean all he's trying to do is you know make it cool for us so we can have 10 minutes to tune up and get it together to go on stage so she reluctantly left and you know cursing me kind of thing you know what i mean and anyway uh you know there i am after aldermont uh, at uh, jerry's house and uh, i w- walked down the street i don't know where i was going i was going for a stroll i think and uh, there's janice's car right there and i said well that must be janice's house or it's the house she's visiting so i went up and knocked on the door and uh, who should open the door but Janice? She's like, Jesus, it's Sam Connor. I'm like, Janice, yeah, right. So, you know, I went and we had a, we became good friends. You know, she was a lovely, soulful lady, man. She was yeah. very special. Yeah. I adored her. And, uh, not, not the brash, vulgar woman that you, you read about as the. Not at all, this man. Was, this was all just a front of her. Very sensitive, very, very soulful. She wanted me to be her tour manager, but. I wouldn't work for her because I wouldn't work with her. I mean, I'd have ended up working for Albert, Albert Grossman, right, right. and there was no way I was going to do that. I didn't. Uh, I didn't approve of Albert. And you had a Albert good relationship. Albert didn't approve of me. Right, right. And you had a really good relationship with the bear as well, right? I did, man. He was a brother, a dear brother, and uh, yeah, I uh, I loved him. And I, I mean, I live in Australia. I'm Australian citizen. And, yeah, because um, he, he passed in Australia, right? He died in Australia. I've, I was at his funeral, and I, yeah, man, I, it was a sad day. He was a very special man, very, very special man, and I loved him dearly. 
He's a true brother, and the Grateful Dead owe him a massive debt, massive, massive debt. He uh, he was a critical influence on the band. They used to drive them crazy, of course. There were, you know, there was always a price to pay for these things. But he was, uh, yeah, he was an essential part of who the Grateful Dead were and what they became, of course. And he was the essential part, for that matter, of the whole counterculture. Yeah. Oh, definitely, especially with his uh, chemistry. Yeah, bless him. But he's also, especially with his technological genius, you know, he had oh, great vision, man, yeah, you know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. And he, it was his vision that the many roads, of course, the Grateful Dead went down, but one of the roads that the Grateful Dead went down was the road of improving the technology put in all kinds of efforts and God knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars into making the sound as good as it could possibly be. Having the best sound, the best instruments, right? Having the best audio systems, that was bare. Giving people the best that you could come up with on every consciousness level in return for them buying a ticket. That's what it was about. Yeah, we've talked to several people who had a chance to hear the wall of sound and just you know, uh, even though it was a giant pain to, to work with and put together, the quality for its time was really unrivaled. So that's revolutionary. That's Absolutely. Yeah. Like Phil Lesh calls it in Long Strange Trip, the voice of God. Yeah. So 1974... <laughs> And I think the end comes with you and the Grateful Dead. You had opened your own company, Out of Town Tours, and you actually yeah. were working with a lot of bands at the time. I was, yeah. And, I mean, listen, I mean, probably my uh, my mistake, I sometimes have my doubts about the wisdom of it all, but I've always been a guy that tells other people how they should do it. It's a pain in the ass, I know, but that's me. That's the kind of person I am. So when the Grateful Dead got to a point where, because of a lot, there was a lot of politics going on within the family, right? Power plays and all that. When they got to the point that they were listening to people who eventually ripped them off anyway, idiots. I mean, I must be one of the only managers that worked for the Grateful Dead that didn't rip them off. Seems to be like a you know perpetual feature of the Grateful Dead's history that they were ripped off by their managers. Anyway, people wanted to take over the Grateful Dead, and there was me representing a kind of big rock mountain in the way of their kind of ambitions. And yeah, so when the Grateful Dead uh, went for what those people were saying and told me that they thought you know that those people should uh, should you know have more of an influence than I thought was healthy, I just said, okay, well, good luck, and left. Yeah, was it really just one meeting and it was done, like you write in the book? Yeah, one meeting, and I just said, good luck, stood up, and walked out of the room. Just like that? Just like that, man. No, I'm not, I, I don't argue for my position. I tell people what I think. They can either go for it or not. That's up to them. If they don't go for it, well, I'm not going to sit there and argue with them. I'll just leave. Yeah. You know what I mean, man? It's like, hello, life is short. I've got plenty of things to do in this life, apart from, you know, looking after rock and roll bands. I mean, since I was like 14 years old, what I wanted to be was a writer. That's what I've, my personal thing is, I've always personally wanted to be, is a writer. That's what I do. That's what I've done for the last 30 years, is be a writer. 
not a very productive one because I also go out and have lots of fun and, and you know, have a great life. But yeah. that's what I can, you know, somebody says to me, well, what do you do? That's what I tell people. I'm a writer. So, but I'm also, I also I hope I'm a visionary. So, I do have a secret project that I'm working on. I mean, I'm writing books. I'm writing uh, a wonderful book that should be a huge hit. It's called Sex for the Over 80s. All right, yeah, just big, kidding. Big just market kidding. out there. Big market. Yeah, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm doing. Uh, uh, what else am I doing? I'm, I'm writing a cancer memoir because I've had cancer three times, and the guy who's the head of the hospital where I was, who who's a deadhead in Australia. Really? Uh-huh. He and I got on like a house on fire, uh-huh. and he's offered to write the preface to my book, my cancer memoir, which is going to be called "Please Die Quietly and Don't Make a Mess." Believe it or not. A whole other look at cancer. I read so many books about cancer and what to do about cancer, and it's mm-hmm. like, come on, man. So this is a kind of alternative view on how to deal with cancer, not be morbid for a start. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Anyway, there's that. Uh-huh. But I'm actually working on a secret project, which I can't it's... tell you anything about, but keep your eyes open because next year I'm going to launch it. And, and it's specifically aimed at the counterculture of the 60s and what they could do. How can I describe it? Let, let me describe. I'll just say this. It's going to be uh, if you if you wanted to put a headline in a newspaper about what I what I'm hoping to do. Go for it. You could you could call it uh, hip comes to Wall Street. Mm, okay. The first hip idea that's ever really come to Wall Street. That Sounds- change, to change the consciousness of what's going on there, but I can't can't do anything more than tell you that. But it it should make an amazing impact, and it will be revolutionary. We'll yeah, keep, keep your eyes open. Definitely. Yeah, that'll be coming. All right. So, uh, you know, one other thing that you wrote was a very nice post on the film when it was first released. Thank uh, you. Yeah. You, you felt the film captured the band or at least gave a, a very good impression of what it was like to be in or around it. Um, the film what, made me cry, man. I, I just was going to ask you, give, us, give me your thoughts on the movie. Now. How did you feel the first time you, you got to see it? And, uh, obviously, Well, I took my, my two sons and I in Australia. Australia, watch the film, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We got a link to watch it from the filmmakers, which was lovely. And I sat there, I cried like a baby, man. And my son had, to, I've got two, my son's six foot six, he's huge, body, weighs like 250 pounds. He's a giant, strong man. My other son's six four, Chesley, named in honor of uh, the memory of Chesley Milliken. And, uh, yeah, I cried like a baby. My my sons had to give me a cuddle and, you know, it's all right, Dad, don't worry. You know, they were lovely about it. It was very, very moving. I thought it was... I thought it was everything, man. I thought it was tragic. It was sad. It was wonderful. It was just, it was an amazing, how do you tell the story of the Grateful Dead in film? God, what a, yeah, what that's... a, what a massive ask, you know, I thought they did it brilliantly. <laughs> I really did. And, uh, Amir Barlev, he's a lovely man. He's a friend of mine. He's a PhD in Buddhist studies. He's a very sensitive cat. I thought it was amazing. I mean, like points I cried, I cried when, 
that Barbara girl said Jerry Jerry suggested we could just live on the uh, revenue, you know, the the, the the royalties from the ice cream. I cried like a baby, man, when they said that. I thought that was the saddest thing ever. I thought, of course, I thought what happened to Jerry was so sad. I thought it was so sad that Grateful Dead never had anyone around like me that knew how to handle, you know, stardom. They had no idea, nobody around them had any idea how to do that. So Jerry was isolated and he lived like a prisoner, man. It was terrible. I said, you know, nobody got into heroin while I worked with the Grateful Dead. No one would have dared to do it because they'd have had to put up with my shit. I would have been merciless with them, man. I'm opposed to heroin. Heroin is a shit drug. They've got massive opiate problems in this country. Yes. It's madness, man. Mm -hmm. Absolute madness. It is the antithesis of life. A disgusting drug. And anybody that gets into it, they have nothing but my pity and contempt. I'm sorry. And my compassionate concern. It's just awful. So to see Garcia go down that road broke my heart man it absolutely did so to see the film and to see that wonderful man slowly decline under the influence of that drug of course just it was torture man it just it just broke me up i just cried man but it was an epically wonderful film i'm proud of what i did with the grateful dead i'm pleased with my contribution to the film such as it was and um yeah, what can I say? That's yeah. I was just uh, oh man, I just uh, I was so disturbed after I saw that film, and it, I didn't sleep well that night. I can assure you. Well, but amazing, amazing film. That is a hearty endorsement. We we have heard that universally from those associated with them in our our long strange podcast miniseries that we're doing. So. I know you've seen Dead and Company, and I think you were at the Camden show on June 25th. I was. What yeah. did you think? I've, you know what, man? I loved him. I loved him. I, you know what I love most of all? I love just seeing Billy and Bobby and uh, Mickey, you know, alive. They're alive. They're still making music. They're obviously happy. Fantastic. Well, you know, I mean, as I said before, opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one, you know. <laughs> I think John Mayer's great. He brings a certain youthful kind of poppy consciousness to it. I think he he really genuinely is treating the music with a great deal of respect. He obviously loves it. I mean, he doesn't have to do it, does he? You know, he's a successful mm, yeah. guy in his own right. Mm -hmm. He's decided to kind of get married to the, the Grateful Dead songbook. I um, mean, sometimes it annoys me when they do songs so slowly. It does my head in, you know. <laughs> but you don't have to, you know, necessarily always do songs the same way. That's certainly not the Grateful Dead way. So, no, I absolutely loved it. I was a bit overwhelmed at the show because so many people came up to talk to me. It was like, what? I mean, I was at Camden. I was at the New York show. At the Camden show, man, it took us half an hour to get, you know, 50 feet from the gate. It was just endless. People coming up and people were so kind and sweet and saying, thank you, man. I thought you were great in Long Strange Trip and thank you for everything you did for the Grateful Dead. That was very moving, man. 
it uh, at times it brought me to tears. It was uh, it was lovely to be in a position where people recognised, you know, that what I'd done for the Grateful Dead was done out of love, genuine love for the music and for the people involved. Those people, to this day, I consider them my brothers, and I'm, I think and hope that they consider me a brother. They always certainly make me feel very welcome, and uh, it was a very moving experience. I'm a very kind of emotional guy, and it was very moving to be there and see them alive, man. What do you want for your friends? You want them to be alive and uh, doing what they do and be happy, don't you? So to see that was just magic. Right. Have you uh, got a chance to speak to the surviving members? Yeah, man. Yeah, I saw I saw uh, Phil and, and Bobby. I saw them at um, Lock-In, and uh, I've seen Phil out at uh, Terrapin. Yeah, man, we're friends. I saw Billy. Billy was lovely. Gave me a huge hug and told the girl who was my wife. We're, we're unfortunately, that fell apart, but he gave me a huge hug and told her, look after him, we love him. And, yeah, it was great, man, you know, of course. Right. They got no complaints with me, man. I showed them what I knew, everything I knew I shared with them. And, yeah, when I joined them, they were making a couple of thousand a night. And when I left them, they were making 150 grand a night. So they got no complaints about me. Sam, you did your And they're still to this day, I mean, the Grateful Dead are doing what I taught them how to do, you know, in some respects. I didn't teach them how to play music, but I taught them how to organize themselves personally and professionally. Right. Sam, it was a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank right. you. I, I just want to reach out, if I may, to all the people who, be, who eventually will be listening to this who are deadheads. I consider myself a deadhead. I actually wrote the line, deadheads unite, you have nothing to lose but your brains, which was a joke about the opening line of the Communist Manifesto, which is workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Right. Right, which is what was uh, the first thing that the of the communist international so it was a kind of uh, a piss take on that right it was time making a joke about that so i wrote that line deadheads unite you have nothing to lose but your brains you know tell us who you are where you are and all that i wrote that that thing for the grateful dead many years ago so many deadheads have come up and given me hugs and been kind to me i love the deadheads i consider myself a proud deadhead and uh, so i just want to reach out through your broadcast to them and say keep the faith stay strong spread the love what the Grateful Dead helped to invent in the 60s and of course other people were involved is still relevant today the world even more needs what we thought was so special in the 60s peace love and music if we could get the world to go for that it would be a happier place thank you for having me on your show it's been great I hope people don't think I've been too arrogant in my claims. I love being a part of the Grateful Dead family then and now, and I proudly wear a Grateful Dead ring since 1969 when it was first given to me. Thank you very much. Diggers, grab Sam's book. You can't always get what you want. My Life with the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, and other wonderful reprobates. Sam, if I ever get a chance to own my own pirate ship, I know who I'll call to be captaining it. Thank you, brother. I know, I, one thing I always remember is which way's north. <laughs> Great having you on Deeper Digs and Rock. Thank you for the invitation. I've had a nice time, man. Bless you. Thanks.
if my words did glow with the gold of sunshine and my tunes were played on the harp of strung would you hear my voice come through the music in 1969, Sam Cutler helped bring the Rolling Stones to the pinnacle of rock and roll. From 1970 to 74, he helped steer the Grateful Dead into solvency and took them to the next level. For decades after that, the Dead were masters of the road, one of the highest grossing rock and roll acts ever. In a way, the Stones and the Dead are two sides of the same coin. Uh, better yet, two sides of the same gold doubloon. Heads, the might and majesty of rock and roll, and tails, rock and roll's anarchic spirit. We give the 21-gun salute to Captain Sam Cutler, who guided two legendary ships through treacherous waters. Can one ask for a better five years than this? We think not. All right, friends, off we go until next time. Um, but one more thing. What was that movie Keith got all dressed up for with Johnny Depp? Hmm. Wonder where that idea came from. And who was it that first uttered that introduction the Stones still use today? And now you know. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Sail ho, lads! And keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.